How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Well, I am in studio with two great friends who are here locally in Middle Tennessee. Morris Proctor, a.k.a. Mo. How long have we known each other? What, 20 plus years? Yeah, when you were in uh, Virginia. Virginia. And for those of you that don't know it, all this is in the show notes, but Mo is a... um, he runs a thing called Camp Logos, but you've expanded it in Morse Proctor seminars, and you're online and training crazy people like me. <laughs> How long have you been, been teaching people Logos? Well, I hooked up with Logos in 98, so I started wow. training. So we were doing live seminars, print manuals, videos now with yeah. technology uh, subscription so people can – Go and access videos 24-7. So uh, it's been a great ride with Logos. I am. Uh, I, I told uh, Bob Pritchard years ago, I said, Logos is crack cocaine for pastors. And he said, I wish I could use that. <laughs> <laughs> and Mo is the dealer. <laughs> Mo keeps all of us in Logos. Um, Robert Morgan and I have only become friends in the last few years here in Mill, Tennessee. Yeah, I wish I'd known you earlier. Likewise. Yeah. Likewise. Donaldson Fellowship for how many? Almost 40 years? 40. I've been there 41, 42 years. I was there 37 years as senior pastor. Yeah. And you've been a, a guest on the program before. You've uh, Both of you have taught at our church here, Stonebridge Bible Church. So, And looking forward to having you in a couple of weeks. Both Thank of y'all you. coming back and opening the word. Our, our folks love hearing from you. If you know Rob Morgan, you know him for a book called Red Sea Rules. And uh, we'll be talking about his Jordan River rules in the not too distant future but um yeah if you don't know rob morgan's books you need to search him again the show notes will have information about that but both these guys are brothers in christ and we talked about this almost 18 months maybe two years ago and um i had a idea that we've not been able to implement with covid but i wanted to get you in studio and talk about the bible this book that we love and there's a couple of ways i want to go with this one what have you observed in the last 20, 30, 40 years, people's reading Scripture, integrating Scripture, learning Scripture, where we are today, some of the diagnostics, some of your frustrations maybe with where people are and need to be, and some of the things that we're hopeful about. And we have encouragement for the future that maybe people are going to get back into the Word. Let me begin with a verse in Hebrews chapter 4 that we all know perhaps uh, too well. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I've often thought that it's probably a double reference to the text and to Jesus. What do y'all think? The Word of God living and active? Well, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't, hadn't thought about I that. hadn't <laughs> thought of that concept, but it makes sense. Yeah, because, I mean, he is the Word, right? And he's the one that judges, and it's his word we're reading. Anyway, I've only found one commentary that agrees with me, so that must be right. <laughs> <laughs> Is that that's the one you wrote? Wasn't it? Uh, no, yes. no, 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 no. You're, you're the writer. Bill Brown, who's a dear friend of ours as well, Dr. Bill Brown, says we had a joke at Cedarville. We'd say, uh, Rob Morgan. You know Rob Morgan? Yeah. What books he releasing this week? 
<laughs> Let's jump into this. Um, so we have more Bibles. We have more translations. Mo, we have technology on the phones we all have in our hands. And are people reading the Bible more? Are they getting into it more? Well, if you uh, read the surveys, the answer is no. And human nature is human nature. I mean, we've always struggled with uh, getting in the Word. We've struggled with prayer. But I think today's even more noticeable just for the busyness of life. I mean, I'm amazed. I'm around younger people a great deal, and I'm amazed at how busy they are, young families. When I started sports, I was eight years old, and I was starting early. I wasn't supposed to start till I was nine. Now kids are starting at three, four. Yes. So if you have a couple kids and then parents today seems like they want them not involved in one activity, but two activities, three or four. So it's just life is busy. And then just, I think the whole social media is just, and I don't want to sound like a dinosaur, but I'm amazed at how paralyzed people are with social media, how they just are addicted to it. And they just take so much time. Anyway, the business of life, just being inundated with social media, entertainment, Netflix, whatever. And, you know, for whatever reason, Bible reading, Bible study just gets pushed to the uh, end of the line. Howard Hendricks used to say every incoming class at Dallas Seminary had a lower Bible understanding than the, the prior class, the prior year. Has that been true in your experience, similar, Rob? Uh, yes, I think so. It's I, I agree with what Morris said. I do find a minority in every church of parishioners who are serious Bible students. And many of them are teenagers or young people. So I know that there is at least a nucleus there, a remnant that are really serious about studying the Bible, and that's very encouraging to me. But Morris is correct about the busyness and the uh, social media. But, you know, even deeper than that, there is a lack of understanding or appreciation as to what Scripture can do for you. And, you know, I was very fortunate to be mentored by some people who love the Bible and let me know that it's so important every day to study it, and not just for knowledge, but for, for uh, communion with the Lord. And, and, you know, I was taught early. I think you've got to begin with uh, middle schoolers and teenagers. And if Ruth Graham said once about Bible study, she said, if children see their parents enjoying their meals, they will be more likely to eat as well. And she was talking about the nurture of the Word of God. So I do think that there is a nucleus there that takes this seriously. But if you could survey any one particular church, the majority would not understand or appreciate the Scripture. And as a result of that, these things would press that out of their schedule. I think we all agree social media and accessibility of all this technology has made life easier and quicker for certain things. It seems the Bible, it requires discipline. It requires sitting down. I, You and I were on an event with our friend Scott Lindsay not long ago about, you know, and I, and I think you and I have different opinions on, I can't open software for devotion. I have got to just stick with a text or I go off in a word study or I'm reading some article. I didn't know I had that book in, in my library and, and an hour has gone by and I barely looked at the Bible. So for me, I still need a pen and a pad and a, and a literal book. So there's some even neuroplasticity they talk about writing and how that's different than typing and keyboarding and thumbing now. So when we have all this technology available, that squeezes out, but it's more convenient. 
I got the lexicon. I got the commentary in my pocket, Mo. So it seems like because I have all this stuff, I should be more inclined to be in it. Well, you would think, and I want to just circle back around. Actually, I agree with you. I don't promote this a great deal, but for my quiet time, yeah. it's paper and ink. Yeah. It's a print Bible. I have an old lazy boy that my wife absolutely hates, <laughs> but it's a smaller lazy boy. I'm not the biggest person around, so I get in that lazy boy. I have a print Bible, just a spiral. You got it broke in finally, right? Yeah, yeah. finally. <laughs> it sits just right. And I have a, a print, just a spiral notebook you get at Walmart, and I just jot thoughts. Now, the people that know me through Lagos and through Camp Lagos, they know this because I talk about Rob a great deal, but Rob is actually my mentor. He was my pastor for years and years. I was a freshman in college at Donaldson when he came to the church in 1980. And uh, it was just a sovereign relationship, a connection. Uh, I'm pushing 60, so Rob is a little bit older than that. Uh, So Rob is close to 10 years my senior, so I was sort of the younger brother he never had. But the first thing that Rob taught me was the discipline of a daily quiet time. And he's taught me a lot, but that is one of the greatest things that he's ever taught me. And the things that he taught, that I still use that. And so I read a portion of Scripture, pick out something that uh, speaks to me. I reflect on that uh, one thing. I record a thought or two or a prayer in the journal and then hopefully leave that quiet time and respond yeah. in obedience yeah. to it. So that's my pattern that I've had for, uh, what, 40 years now that Rob taught me. So I still Good. paper and ink. But to your question that with the technology and why, I guess it just comes back to good old discipline. Priorities. Yeah. I enjoy hanging out at the gym, and I've got a good friend there, Doug. He's 30-something years old. He's a, a trainer. He works with uh, big boys, and uh, I won't say big girls, but girls that are <laughs> they're into uh, competition and bodybuilding and so on. And so he has them on a regiment, and he will tell me often that he will have them up early in the morning doing cardio to cut weight, and sometimes they'll come to him and say, ah, with all that's going on in life, I just don't have time for this. Can I cut this out? He'll say, get up earlier. He doesn't cut any slack when it comes to bodybuilding. So life is busy, but if it's a priority, I've discovered, and we know this, we make time for what we want to make time for. And it just doesn't get really uh, as simple as that, but it's just a discipline, whether it's a print book or reading a Bible on a phone. Scott mentioned a study, I forget, who did it, but it was uh, your time in the Word. And if you were once a week, there was negligible change in your worry, anxiety, your marriage, whatever. Twice a week, nothing. Three times a week, nothing. Four times a week, there was a bump. People were less depressed, less discouraged, less angry. And then, of course, you, you do the math. You know, I, I use the joke about morning by morning, new verses I read <laughs> because <laughs> I see things I never saw before. I've got it marked up to remind me what I saw that last time I spent time there. But at the end of the day, I need continual renewal. I know, Rob, you're a very disciplined guy. You're up early and you're in the word. I think Mo told me once, he goes, Rob gets more done in in the morning before eight than you and I all week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and I'm just looking at your Bible open here and it's all marked up. It reminds me of that old saying that a well-marked Bible means a well-fed soul. And, you know, Morris and I have a very similar testimony. I was 19, and I'm 69 now, when I was taught to have my daily Bible study in the morning. 
And that is 50 years now, exactly 50 years that I've been doing wow. this. And Dr. Stephen Olford once came and preached at our school. And I'd never heard him before, never heard anybody preach like him before. Uh, and I went up to him afterwards and I said, what advice would you give a young man? And he said, never, never, never miss your quiet time. <laughs> and he turned around and walked away. That's, that's all he said. But I've never forgotten that. I mean, it made an impact on me. So I use a wide margin Bible now and a mechanical pencil. And, you know, when you study expositionally, that is when you, right now I'm going through Ezekiel. So when you wow. study through a book, then if you're a preacher or a teacher, you find that you're not preparing sermons, but five or six months later, your sermons are probably be coming out of that book because one's ministry must be overflow. You know, you've got to have overflow if you're going to, to be refreshing as a Bible teacher. So to me, it's indispensable. You know, I, I wouldn't know how to arrange my day if I didn't begin it with Bible study. And, and on the times we miss, I always feel like I'm tripped all day. Yeah. You know, it's not legalistic. It's not that you have to, it's that you can. Not that you should, but you're able, you know, and it's here's the sovereign God of the universe, his mind bound in those leather covers, and we can never exhaust it. I can't retain it. I find the older I get, the harder time I have retaining things. And that's why I color, as my friend Dave Gibson says, Michael, I don't know if you've read your Bible, but you've colored most of it. <laughs> <laughs> but this whole idea of a lifelong relationship in the scripture so that we have this relationship with the God of the Scripture. I mean, where are we failing in this? Because we're all, we're all going to say, yeah, people don't read the Scripture. And you and I have all been in pulpits most of our adult life. So where is the disconnect? Do we own some of this ourselves? I think one of the disconnects, there's two that, that I'll point out. One is with parents, because children who see their parents loving the Scriptures and having their devotions— are more likely to do the same. When my wife Katrina was very sick, some of my family members moved in and it became crowded. So I went out to the patio one morning to have my quiet time and my grandson, who was 14 at that time, Elijah, came down and he said, what are you doing, Papa? And I said, well, I'm having my morning Bible study. Would you like for me to show you how to do it? And I had the most wonderful time teaching him what I've done all of these years, and I ended up going out and getting him a notebook and getting him a Bible. So it's got to really begin in the home. This is the Jewish system of education, is talk to your children when you get up and when you go to bed, when you're sitting at home, when you're walking along the way. And we've got to share our love for God's Word with our children and show them how to do it. I think if we do, that will be a tremendous help. The other thing is the pulpit ministry of the church we attend should have the kind of attractive, expositional, relevant, Bible-centered sermons that will help us to want the same thing in our own daily lives. I think people tend to study the Bible the way they hear it preached. So if they just hear topical sermons or TED Talks or motivational talks— then their own relationship with the Scripture is not likely to grow deeper. If instead the pastor understands the wonder of unfolding the Scripture and he knows how to handle it correctly, then I think many people in that church will tend to be deeper in their own relationship with Scripture. Mo, thoughts on that? Well, amen, both of those points. My wife, Cindy, 
and I had the privilege of babysitting our two grandsons for a week, uh, a week or so ago. As our third grandchild, granddaughter was born, and so huh. we're <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> we're babysitting the four-year-old and the two-year-old, and of course, as grandparents, a lot of moving parts. Low, <laughs> I was worn out. Uh, but uh, as grandparents, we don't observe the suggested schedule as tightly as the parents Shh, do. Shh, don't tell them that. <laughs> so our philosophy is let's keep these grandkids up as long as we can and they'll wear themselves out. So <laughs> the four-year-old and I are having a big time, and he's finally just winding down, barely keeps his eyes open. So we have a nighttime ritual reading and some prayers and stuff right. anyway. And I get him in the bed. He's laying there all tucked in and stuff, barely can keep his eyes open. Turn the light out. I'm getting ready to walk out. He said, doxology. Get out. I said, excuse me? He Get said, out. doxology. And Cindy said, you've got to sing the doxology. I That's a it. part of the, the nighttime huh. ritual. And, of course, I can't carry tune in the bucket, so I don't know if, <laughs> if, if he got it. But So every night we had to sing the doxology. Well, we're and recording so he, this. Go ahead and give us, give us a <laughs> no, demo <let's> here. Not. <laughs> so obviously his, uh, his parents are uh, instilling that. In them, so that's just wonderful. So you've mentioned uh, working out, and uh, you mentioned starting young when Hannah was playing piano. She was a fabulous pianist, uh, piano teacher, and you know they teach classic and theory, which every child loves, <laughs> right? <laughs> when she got to the junior high years, she she said, "Michael, my objective is to let them play anything they want. If it's Disney, if it's a musical, because I want to keep them interested through those junior high years, and then maybe." beyond high school, they may not stay with it all their life, but they'll come back to it. And so that, whether it's music or athletics or the scripture, it's the same discipline and routines. I think it was Fred Smith that said maturity is turning discipline into reflex. That once you do something long enough that you don't have to think about, oh, I have to get up and go work out or run, or I don't have to get up and open the Bible. I get to open the Bible. Well, it is. It should be I mean, I look forward to it all the time. It's not, to me, it's, it's no longer a discipline. I think it was in Atomic Habits, one of these habit books that's been popular recently, that said that something ceases to be a discipline after it becomes a habit. You begin with the discipline. You know, you have to pick up the towel off the, the floor in the bathroom, and you have to remind yourself to do it. But after a while, you're released from that feeling of discipline, it no longer takes nearly as much effort because it's become routinized and habitualized in your life. Well, I guess after 40 years for you and 50 years <laughs> for me, this is, a, you know, this is a habit that no longer requires really discipline, except on rare occasions. You know, If I'm traveling or something, I have to really make sure that I preserve that time. But it's something that I just look forward to. I mean, I'm so eager to do it that that it would be a discipline not to, almost. But, you know, maybe that's something that we grow into. Maybe that just takes some time. I want to just say one other thing about what Rob said, because I work with, mostly now with pastors, not exclusively, but mostly. And as I said, Rob was my mentor. Rob is much more mellow now than he was. Rob was really rough on me. <laughs> Again, I we, don't believe that. <laughs> we, we had a big brother-little brother relationship. And so Rob instilled in me uh, inductive Bible study, expository preaching, but I never will forget. Again, I don't know if Rob remembers these things or not, but they're stuck in my head. He said, you have to model for the congregation Bible reading, Bible study, and he says, as they see you unfolding a text, 
and seeing it in context, then they can do this for themselves. Right, right. And so I've, I've never forgotten that. So I, I really try to encourage pastors to do the same. You've got to model. And in this age of sound bites and memes and so on, where, you know, you just lift a verse out and it makes a nice slide for social media. And, yeah, <laughs> I think we need a little bit more. Context is completely irrelevant. Let's just, you know, <laughs> I can, I can prove any theolo- theological point with a verse taken out of context. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that the routines and disciplines we're talking about and how we inculcate that in our, our younger folks. But we also have an adult audience in our churches that the reading has gone down and, and maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's this, that, or the other. We can point to the planes, but I, I remember uh, just as an anecdote, I was speaking at a conference somewhere and I got up and I had this message that I had used once before, maybe twice before, because you do that when you travel, you recycle things. And I had my devotion in the hotel before I went to speak. And I said, you know, before I, oh, you know, whatever the passage was, I went, I just saw something this morning. And I read a little part of Psalm 25, I think it was, and talked about, I'm always struck that he forgives my sins for his name's sake. And I stopped for, you know, 30 seconds and said, have you thought through that recently that, you know, I mean, it's great that we get forgiveness. We know we get to get out of jail free card. First John 1, 9 is worn out. But he does it for his identity, for his namesake, for his reputation. And later on that week, I was there for a week, this guy came up to me and says, you know, I liked your sermon, but that's what I remember. And it illustrates what you both are saying is that when you're coming from what I'm learning, what God's teaching me, where I'm convicted, where I struggle with obeying something, that's where the pastor and the minister and the Sunday school teacher connects, right, more with his or her class that they're over. Yeah, the pastor, when he's cut, he should bleed scripture. I mean, there are three trends that bother me a lot today in the church. One is the, the failure to do solid expositional teaching in the church. The other is the um, rushing to nothing but contemporary music without some inclusion of classic hymnody. And the third is removing elementary children from their parents during the worship service, because I think they need to hear the exposition of Scripture too. So when you have a church and the kids are segregated, they never hear their pastor until they're in the fifth or sixth or seventh grade, and so they're being taught down here at a children's level, and they never hear any music that's going to last more than two months, so they don't develop any lifelong lyrics, and all they hear are motivational, topical sermons in the pulpit. You're not going to have very many Bible students in that church. It's going, it may grow wide, but it's going to be pretty shallow. Uh, if you reverse those things, then I think you, the percentage of Bible, serious Bible students you have in that congregation will grow. It'll grow exponentially with the depth that the pastor carries onto the platform with him. So you both have brought up pastors, and um, I don't know how many pastors will hear this or if someone will forward it on to them. You need to listen to this. But, I mean, you and I, the three of us, we're, we're dinosaurs. Let's just acknowledge it. We're old school guys because we teach the Bible. We might have a topic series that we package, but it's coming out of exposition, not just picking, you know, six ways to be a better friend or how to apply the Enneagram in your personal life. I mean, there are all kinds of things you can teach out there. But you said Ezekiel, I'm teaching the book of Philippians this fall. I'll spend hours 
and hours and hours in that text with the text, with the Greek, reading commentaries, banging my head on the, on the keyboard going, how do I make this you know, communicable so they'll hear it? Because we can bore people. So for the, the would-be pastor, the would-be, maybe they're Sunday school teachers, men and women who teach classes, how do you help them say, what you're doing, this is eternally important. This isn't just a TED Talk. This isn't a meme. This is eternally important. <laughs> I mean, Mo, you do this for a living. You stand in front of how many pastors on your Rolodex, so to speak. Help me with Logos, Mo. How do I use this tool? Much more importantly, how do we communicate that life-changing scripture to people? Well, I am very fortunate, and I've told you this before over lunch, that I get to work with the cream of the crop. So I'm working with people who've already invested hundreds, thousands of dollars in Logos Bible software, and then they're now investing in training, both finances and time. So if you're going to make that kind of investment, you're normally pretty serious about Bible study. And a good number of the pastors that come to my training are expositors or want to be expositors. So I just know that I'm coming from that uh, vantage point. But one of the things that I tell them, and I have the privilege of also working with young up-and-coming pastors and expositors, is I just tell them there are no shortcuts. Whether you're working with print books, whether you're working with the gift of Logos technology, studying the Bible, preparing sermons is hard work. you got to lock yourself up. That's another thing that Rob taught me. He taught me as a young pastor Reserve your mornings for God. Reserve your mornings for study. You've got plenty of time in the afternoon to do your administrative work, but I don't want to see you coming out of the office. I expect you to be studying. Study, sermonizing, is just hard work, and there are no shortcuts. And I just, if you don't want to be a student, then please try not to be a preacher. <laughs> well, and I, I tell that on the rare occasion, and I used to have this more often, people say, well, I, I think I want to go to seminary. I want to be a pastor. I want to do what you do. I, and the first thing I say is, do you love to study? Bruce Waltke was introduced many years ago by Dr. Ed Bloom, and he said, Dr. Waltke has the gift of Sitzenflosch. He said, roughly translated in German, that means you can sit on your hmm all day long and study. <laughs> and he could. He could sit you know, and study all day. Now, some are not wired that way, but your point is well taken. It's work. Now, the good part of that is not, not that it gets easier, but you get a method. Yes. Right? You learn, okay, is this a theological problem? Is this a word study problem? Do I need to explain that term to people when you come across the one-time propitiation is in the New Testament? Do I need to take a minute and say, this is what this means? Mo preached a while back, if you didn't hear this sermon, I told Mo this is the probably the best piece of exposition I've heard in five years. And he preached on Joshua 1 and about on meditate on the word and the homework he did on that term I'd never seen. I was blown away. That took you some time to mine that out. But then we're the recipients of that. So I go, that's the joy of that hard work, right? Right. Rob, when you talk to young pastors or or you hope for a young pastor to get get his nose in the book, how, how would you encourage him? Well, you know, I would tell him that all sermons are hard work, but expositional sermons are not as hard work as topical sermons. I agree. Because with a topical sermon, you have to come up with your own thoughts. No, you just steal them from re- somebody on YouTube. Yeah, you can. And then you, you have to, to find Bible verses and find illustrations. And, 
and you have to assemble everything every week from scratch. When you are preaching expositionally, like you're going through Philippians, it does take work to study the book of Philippians, but you, you know, exposition is basically taking a paragraph and saying, what does this paragraph say? How does it say it? How can I apply it? You go to the next paragraph. And to me, it's much simpler to be an expositor than it is to be a topical preacher. Are we, uh, I mean, we're friends, right? How much of these super preachers that hang over our shoulders affect, you know, our own study? I mean, how many times does someone come and say, you know, oh, I heard so-and-so sermon on the radio. It was so good this week, you know. <laughs> Pastor Morgan, I've listened to you 40 years. I don't remember one thing you said, <laughs> you know. I mean, there is that reality that we've got these superheroes over our shoulders. You know, I, I don't think too much about that. I appreciate it. <laughs> He's just too godly. He's I, too godly, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate good super yes. pastors yeah. and enjoy listening to them. And I enjoy scholars you know, that you can listen to their podcasts. and But there are a lot of preachers I just don't listen to. And I'm sure that's true for you guys. They're, most of the ones that, you, uh, that may be prominent, maybe their gift is evangelism. Maybe it's encouragement. I don't think that it maybe is Maybe it's that, entertainment. It could be. I don't <laughs> think it is that prophetic ministry of the exposition of Scripture. To me, if I listen to a sermon and I don't learn anything new, then... You know, I'm a little disappointed because the Bible is so deep, so rich, just like the word meditate in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. You want to, you learn something new. That was what helped you. That's what intrigued you. And a lot of sermons, you know, most people, even if they've been in church for any length of time, they don't hear anything new. They just hear something old, tried to be delivered with more enthusiasm. At the same time, the message hasn't changed, Rob. The content of the word. I mean, are we talking about a new insight or maybe a new application? Or I think of re-education because people maybe have heard these things, but they need to be reminded or re-educated. There's just a lot that they haven't heard. I mean, I still learn things. I was listening to a preacher the other day, and he said, do you know what Nahum took back to Syria with him after he was healed by dipping in the Jordan River? He wanted one thing that he could take back to Syria with him. It was as much dirt as two donkeys could bear. And I'd never thought of that. And I went to, you know, I studied it in Second Kings, and it's true. Naaman wanted to go back as a worshiper of Jehovah, and he wanted to be able to worship on holy land, on holy ground. And I'd never heard that, and I've been studying the Bible and listening to it all my life, and I didn't know that. So there's, there's just a lot in Scripture okay. that is intriguing, is interesting, is edifying, but it's only as you go through those passages that it comes up and you can say to your audience, hey, I've been studying the Bible 50 years, and I, I saw something saw here before. that I've never seen yeah. before. Let me share it with yeah. you. Uh, I'm going to go back to the point of the super pastor because you intonated and I interrupted you, but don't listen to them in the sense that if you're got a church of 200 or 100 or 400 people, and, and you maybe you're in an area that's not going to grow much, don't for one moment think that's not important. Don't for one moment think you need to be super pastor so-and-so on the West Coast or whatever, that those are the people God's entrusted to you. Those are eternal souls. And, you know, I try to encourage guys, you know, small church ministry and whatever you don't compare, don't ever come and learn from, sure, what's a church doing that's helpful in outreach or whatever, or discipleship, but don't compare yourself. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I guess I've come to the point where one of the things I've learned, Mo, in the last maybe five years is that one day I may be preaching to 5,000, one day I may be preaching to 500, one day I, I may be preaching to 50, and one day I may be doing the laundry and washing the dishes at my house. And I'm just, one of those is just as fulfilling as the other. You know, I think in, when I was younger, preaching to the large crowd would have been, you know, that would have been heady. But right now, I just say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And, and it's very liberating to come to that point. Yeah. Yeah, I learned somewhere along the line, God has asked me to be faithful, not successful. And, you know, whatever you have in front of you. Well, just a quick P.S. on that. Just if we're saying another word to pastors, especially young pastors. I encourage them to find your voice, your identity, your personality. God has chosen you, your gifts that he's deposited in you, your voice. He wants to use you. Now, that usually requires a little bit of maturity. I'd sort of tell people, but it was true. When I was a, a young pastor, we had all kind of guest preachers showing up. You didn't know who was going to preach that Sunday. Could be Jack Hayford, could be John MacArthur, could be Charles Stanley. It was whoever I listened to that week because <laughs> I was still trying to find the Morris's voice. Yes, use the tools and so on, but then that message has to be delivered through personality. So it, it took several years of maturity and growth to say, hey, God wants to use me. And you referred to the super pastors. That's another good news, bad news about modern technology. Good news is 24-7, we can listen to pretty much any preacher, teacher we want. Bad news is 24-7, we can listen to pretty much any <laughs> yeah, preacher. Yeah, yeah. And so for you, young pastor, especially that can be intimidating. So I encourage them, not every sermon is going to be a home run, but be consistent in exposition, singles, doubles, line upon line, precept upon precept. Yeah, maybe once a month, once a quarter, once a year, you'll knock it out of the park. But just be consistent with good Bible teaching and exposition. Uh, when, you, when you look at the future, what are one, two, three things that encourage you about not only technology, but making it available and getting people into the Word? Well, again, good news, bad news. Bad news is our culture is becoming more and more secular. The good news is our culture is becoming more and more secular. It's not satisfying. I mean, it just, it, it's not. We know that. And again, I'm at the gym surrounded mainly with young people, and I'm sort of like, quote, the pastor. They come up and ask me Bible questions, theological questions. So I see a hunger, and I'm talking about young uh, men in their 30s, have children now, uh, elementary age, and they're starting to think about life and their kids. And so they are getting in the Word, and that's encouraging, and it's encouraging that I'm able to have just a, a little bit of influence uh, yeah. with them. So I think, as Rob said, in any church, there's going to be, uh, quote, uh, a remnant who really want to be in the Word for themselves. So I, I see that, and that's very encouraging. And again, a lot of the pastors that I work with are 20-somethings, 30-somethings, and they want to learn how to be expositors for good, better, indifferent. They're, maybe they didn't get that in their education, right. but they want to. So that's very encouraging. Rob, how about you? What do you see that encourages you? A couple of things. Well, in terms of technology, you know, we have all of these resources now that we never had before. We can, what used to be 
two or three room library now can fit on your tablet. But the other side of it is I'm encouraged by the technology that we can use in disseminating that message because now we can prepare a sermon, but that sermon can be repurposed in so many ways. We can preach it on Sunday, we can put it online, but we can also take excerpts and tweet it out. We can use uh, a blog, we can use a podcast, we can uh, use social media, Facebook and Instagram and other channels. We can put it in church resources that are going out to another demographic. So there are so many different ways now in which we can get mileage. One of the reasons we want to put a lot of time into the sermon preparation is because it no longer is something that will just last for 30 minutes while people are sitting there and then disappear and and be gone. Uh, It can now be utilized in a multitude of ways and have a life that will go on for years and years and years because of the technology. So we need to be feeding that technology good quality material because we don't know the ripple effect that it may have all around the world. You can preach to someone now and people that you've never heard of and and countries that you've never visited will be, they will be touched by that. So to me, that's very encouraging. Think about the couple, the guy who's listening to me right now, and he doesn't feel necessarily qualified, but he'd like to start a Bible study or a discipleship group, and he wants to learn the scripture, and he wants to be, you know, the things we're talking about in the Word every day. How would you, how would you get him started? How would you encourage him? I would give him a wide margin Bible, tell him to pick a book like Philippians, and just to pour over it day and night, to read it over and over and over again. There's a little book, you probably know it by James M. Gray, who's at Moody, called How to Master the English Bible. And it's just a very short book, but it is excellent. It shows you how to fall in love with every one of the 66 books of the Bible. So if he will read it over and over again, make notes in the margins, begin to see where the divisions are, and I, you know, just draw a line through those divisions. It's very clear many times where Paul stops a thought and then begins a new one. And then ask, what does this mean to me? What am I getting out of this? How is this changing my life? When it says rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Uh, Or when it says, uh, whatever happens, I want to know that you're standing firm in the Lord. What does that look like in my life? Then after he has just done that work with the English Bible, even if he doesn't use any resources, then you begin to think, how can I lead people through this text? and explain it and help them to discuss it, and, uh, and then how can I help them apply it to their lives? Then it's a very natural, you know, for 2,000 years, people didn't have the technological resources that we have, but they had a passage of Scripture, and usually they had a, a lamp and maybe a pen and maybe a piece of parchment or a piece of paper, and that really is the essence of it, plus you have the Holy Spirit to be your tutor. So that's the place to start. And then you can build on, on that. But that very simple process, I think, is, is that's at the core of it. Mo, what would you add? A guy, a guy or a couple, and they think, you know, I'm a little anxious, I'm nervous, I'm afraid. How do I invite people? How do we start studying the Bible together? Well, I would, uh, I don't want this to sound commercialized, but since I'm a trainer for Lagos, I would encourage people to go to their app store just and download Lagos Bible software, absolutely free. No credit card required. Create an account, and then they can download the Logos app. 
obviously their phone, their tablet, and there's a couple dozen books absolutely free. If they want to add a Bible or so, like NASB or ESV, I think it's like 10 bucks, but they get a couple Bibles free. But in there is the uh, Faith Life Study Bible, which is one of the best, if not the best study Bible out there because it's just massive because it was created not for print, but for electronic. There's also a tremendous Bible dictionary called the Lexham Bible Dictionary. So they're going to have a Bible. They're going to have a study Bible. They're going to have a nice Bible dictionary, which for a lot of Christians homes, that's more. Yes. (laughs) That's a bigger Christian library. So again, it's absolutely free and they can create through that app. uh, It's what's called faith life groups. And in that small group is Christian social media, faith life groups, and they can it can be private. They don't have to share anything with the world, and they can uh, share uh, prayer requests. They can share reading plans. They can share notes. So they can use modern technology to begin to encourage each other, hold each other accountable, and so on. So Logos.com or the Logos app, or they could also go to faithlife.com. They can read all about it. But those faith life groups, which is, again, taking social media and redeeming it for uh, for godly purposes. One of the things I'm, I'm struck by the way people will download apps, I won't name anyone in my family, <clears throat> but their phone has so many apps on it, I can't find the screen, you know, or an app. And I, I think Faith Life is this little thing that gives you so much for free, and you can have your six girlfriends, your six guy friends, your six couple friends. You can share prayer requests. You can send messages. You can do a reading plan together. You can, I won't say hold accountable, but it, it's a way to say, let's do this together. And, uh, you know, what, what I was asking the question, you know, my answer to my own question is it just takes initiative. It takes one couple or one person to say, I'm going to start a Bible study and I don't know everything, but we can do this together. And I love Robert, your, your, you know, encouragement, read it, study it, get a grasp of it. But I can also do that with some people. Because yes. a lot of times I feel, I don't know how to do this, Rob. I can't read the Bible like you and Mo and Michael. And we'll get three or four of your friends and say, let's do this together. And, you know, I, I have a, a Monday reading group. I have a WebEx group. And we did Augustine's Confessions. We're doing John Hanna's two volumes on history right now. I would probably do that by myself. But I do it a lot better when I got to show up Monday at lunchtime with nine other guys that have all done their homework generally. (laughs) And we're going to talk about this 80 pages of the text we read and the cross pollination and the insights we see and the rabbit trails we get on. I look forward every Monday morning. Hey, at about five minutes to noon, I got to turn my camera on, I get my light on and close the door to my office and I got to get on my WebEx call. And I just think the enthusiasm of taking the initiative to say, let's do this together. Because like at the gym, you know, as well as I do, if you said, Hey, once a month on Monday night at the gym, we're going to do a, a, a workout and a 10-minute Bible study. Stump Mo. Yeah, I mean, how, how people respond to that. That's my point. Am I, am I off base there? No. No, and, and, and it brings up the fact that it's fun. We've got to come to a point of recognizing that this is pleasurable. This is joyful. This is nourishing. Studying the Bible and teaching the Bible is the, one of the happiest things that anybody yeah. can ever do. You know, we, we talk about how hard it is, and all my pastor friends, we talk about, I've been doing this 40-plus years. I still pound my head against the keyboard to get that sermon done for Sunday. But to get paid, quote-unquote, to spend your time studying the Word of God 
and then sharing it with people. Not a better job on the planet. No. Not a better job on the planet. And if I can add a quick P.S. as we're landing the plane, Rob and I had a church member at Donaldson years ago. Her name was Marge Miller. And I never will forget one thing that she taught me. She was uh, teaching a class, and she opened up to Isaiah chapter 50 about the servant. And she said, look at verse 4. And it says, morning by morning, he awakens me to listen with the ear of a disciple. She said, you know this is a prophecy about our Lord. And then I went to Mark, Mark uh, 135, I believe. It says, Jesus arose early in the morning while it was still dark dark and went to a lonely place to pray. The daily quiet time is not just a good idea for us. Jesus literally established that. I mean, he went away, he listened to the Father, he fellowshiped with the Father, and like you guys said, that wasn't hard work. That was daily bread. That was daily nourishment. That was being with his Father, with his friend. And then it's amazing, especially in John, you hear Jesus say things like this. The only things I'm saying to you are the things I first heard my father say. The only things I'm doing are the things I first saw. Where did he get that? It was in that daily time with the Lord because he listened with the ear of a disciple. That's good. Good stuff. Robert Morgan, uh, prior pastor, are you the emeritus of the Donaldson Fellowship? Well, I haven't gained that title yet. (laughs) Well, we can work on that. Uh, 40 years of ministry there, author of many books you'll find in the show notes. Uh, uh, I'm the teaching pastor there. I preach once a month and I teach a class during the semesters. And I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity. And for those of you who are on social media, uh, Rob has a uh, one-minute, actually it's 59-second Instagram. You can watch every single day, which I do most days. Not every day, I have to confess. <laughs> not every day. And my great friend, Mo Proctor, who if you don't know his name, again, the show notes, if you want to get your toe into Lagos, which uh, Mo and I would tell you all day long, it's a great investment. It's not an expense. It's an investment in your spiritual life. It's an investment in learning the Word of God with confidence. And he's a great trainer. I subscribe to his uh, his videos. How many do you have now on the on the how many hundreds? Uh, uh, thousands. Thousands of videos? <laughs> tens yeah. of thousands. Yeah, yeah. yeah tens <laughs> of thousands. Yeah. Uh, the buses will wait. But anyway, you, you can look up any question you have. How do I tag a book? Well, Mo's got a way to teach you how to use Logos, and it's a fun tool. It'll change. It's changed my life, and I appreciate both of you, man. You're committed to God's Word, your, your friendship uh, with me, and uh, the ministry He's given you. So thanks for jumping on the podcast with us. My joy. Thank you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.